0: The year was 1650. And in Sweden, they were preparing to crown Christina as queen. It was one of the most lavish coronation processions that the world had ever seen to that point. The parade route was a distance of about six miles, the same distance as from where we sit right now to the middle of the village of Croton. Along that procession, there was a waterway where 40 warships were brought in by the Swedish Navy to accompany this procession. To prepare for this procession, three triumphal arches were built for this one day. When the first people who left the palace where Christina was residing reached Stockholm, six miles away, the last one had not left the procession at the palace. Imagine that, six miles. She reigned for 22 years, and quite honestly, she was an awful queen. In 1977, in the Central African Republic, His Imperial Majesty, there's a title, His Imperial Majesty, Bokassa I, was coronated for a mere price of $25 million. One day, $25 million, he wore a 32-pound robe covered in gold and pearls. He sat on a throne that cost $2.5 million to build in 1977, solid gold. And he wore a $2.5 million crown that had as its centerpiece an 80-carat diamond, Dude probably needed to go to the chiropractor after that day. <laughs> he reigned for two years and was literally run out of his country because of how much he oppressed his own people. Neither of these monarchs produced a successful reign, and they certainly did not produce an enduring kingdom at all. Our text today that I read earlier in Luke, though, details for us the coronation of procession for the king of kings and lord of lords for the messiah it certainly wasn't costly there were no fancy outfits there were no triumph arches that were built for him just the king of kings and lord of lords on the back of a colt of a donkey some palm branches a few coats thrown down and a lot of people If we look at our text this morning in Luke chapter 19, I want us to see that Luke is very careful to want us to connect what we saw last week, the parable of the 10 minas, and, and also this account here of the triumphal entry. Because in verse 28, he says, and when he had said these things when he had said these things so so we get the idea as as they're on procession jesus is sharing as they're going from jericho down to jerusalem jesus is sharing this this parable with them and now he had said these things and he and he's moving on and he's drawing near to jerusalem remember back last week that there were groups of people that we looked at in this parable there were servants there was a There were two good servants. There was one who was an evil servant, but there were also citizens. And remember, the citizens were noted for this. The citizens were the ones who rejected the nobleman as their king. And it's in light of that that now we're going to be dealing with some of these citizens who are going to reject Jesus as king. And so as Jesus draws near to Jerusalem, they, they come to the Mount of Olives. And, as, and, and I want you to understand, I know many of us, probably most of us in this room, have not been to the Holy Land. I've not been there either, but, but I love geography and I love doing a study of it and what it's like. This, this, this road from Jericho to Jerusalem is pretty much an uphill climb of 3,500 feet or so. And so that's a significant change in elevation as they're moving, Right? And it's a dangerous road. It's winding. There's very narrow passages and places, lots of places for thieves and robbers to hang out and rob traveling parties. But now they've come to really close to Jerusalem. And the way that you know that is, is that you come out of this really wild and rugged wilderness terrain, and you come to this little tiny mountain called the Mount of Olives, And they're now on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, ready to come up over the Mount of Olives, back down on the other side. And and when they get to the top of the Mount of Olives, they'll be able to look down and look over and see Jerusalem. But on the one side, on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, is a tiny little village called Bethphage. This is the only time in the Bible this village is mentioned. It, It is just a little speck on the map. Just a tiny little place. It's kind of like the place where I grew up, Sullivan, Ohio. Literally a crossroads, that's all it was. And, and so as, as you're thinking about this, this is just a little tiny crossroads. They've come through Bethany. Bethany is much more significant in the scriptures. It's where Lazarus and Mary and Martha live. It's a place that Jesus spent a lot of time. When he was down in Jerusalem ministering, we get the idea from scripture that Jesus would kind of go back to Bethany and that he would hang out there in Bethany with his friends. We know that he's just been with Mary and Martha and Lazarus from the other gospel accounts. And as Jesus is now making this final trip, uh, in this final leg of this trip, as they're coming to the mount, he wants to prepare everything in detail. Have you ever noticed when you read the scriptures how detailed they can be at Sometimes. How detailed they can be and how the the writers of Scripture can be so detailed about things that, that maybe when we're reading it, we're like, I don't know why we had to have that specific detail there. But words matter in the scriptures. I say that over and over. They do. The words matter. The details matter. And, and, and as we picture now Jesus coming to this, the, the bottom of the Mount of Olives, he, he sends two of his disciples in front of them. Look at verses 28 and 29. When he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away went and found it, just as it had been told them. Okay? So, so there's a lot of little details here. It is, and these details are really important because this day had been prophesied way long before in the Old Testament, and I want you to see this today. I want to look at two passages that, 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 that I want to just bring to bear this morning before we even move forward in this account to show you that, that God has, and he had, and he still has, a definite plan for all of history. Because I know this, and this is kind of tangential, but, but I've been feeling this myself. I look around at the world around us. I look at even what's happening just in our own county, and I sometimes wonder, God, what are you thinking here? You ever get that way? God's always got a plan, and God's always going to accomplish his plan. So go with me back to the book of Zechariah in your Old Testament. Okay? It's in that pages of your Old Testament that are probably pretty white still because you don't usually touch those ones. Okay? It's really close to the end of your Old Testament, the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. So as Zechariah is pronouncing judgment on the enemies of Israel, and as, God, as, as God's given him his word here, God drops in this nugget, if you will, in the middle of all of this pronouncement of judgment. And in, in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, we read these verses, "'Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion!' Okay, this is in the middle of really bad news that he's giving, that he's giving to to Israel. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on the donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Not just on a donkey, but on what does does Zachariah say he's coming on? The colt, the foal of a donkey. And I'm like, I read that, and I'm like, whoa. That's pretty detailed, isn't it? But go with me to the book of Daniel, because I want you to see something that just fascinates me. When you go to Daniel, and especially where we're going to go in Daniel, in Daniel chapter 9, what kind of scripture are you dealing with, church? You're dealing with prophecy here, right? And you're dealing with prophetic passages that deal with way down the future for Israel. And and in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has been given this dream, if you will, and he's been given this vision, and, and he's been given some words here from, from, the, from God himself. And as Daniel's working through this, he hears these words in verse 24 of Daniel chapter 9, "...seventy weeks are decreed about your people." Seventy weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin, and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and profit, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for sixty-two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time." And after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing." And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary and its end shall come with the flood and to its an end there shall be war. Desolations are decreed and he shall make a strong covenant with many for one week and for half of the week he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering and on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate until the decreed decree end is poured out on the desolator. And we read that and when you get in your Bible reading schedule and you're reading through Daniel, you're like, what is he talking about here? Well, what he's talking about here is he is absolutely nailing down a timeline here. God is giving to Daniel a timeline here. And the thing that relates to this day on Palm Sunday is the 70 weeks and the 69 of the 70 weeks. He says there's seven weeks and then there's 62. Do some math with me, church. Seven plus 62 is what? 69, right? 69 weeks Basically what he's saying, that word weeks could be 69 sevens, 69 sevens, a little bit more complicated math now, 69 times seven is what? Who's a mathematician in the room? Don't cheat and get out your phone. Come on, back in, somebody who's older in this room who could do it in their head because they never had to use a computer. 483, very nice. 483 years. God is saying, now go back with me to this, that from the going out of the word, verse 25, to restore and build Jerusalem, there's going to be a period of 483 years, and at the end of 483 years, the anointed one, an anointed one, verse 26, will be cut off and will have nothing. What is he saying here? Well, if I had time, I'd show you how this all works out. But this works out to the day. This absolutely works out to the day of the day that Jesus appears here. The month of Nisan, which is the first month in the Jewish calendar, and the Jewish calendar is different than ours. It has different days than ours. It's not a 365-day calendar. It's a different calendar. But if you take the Jewish calendar and you move forward 483 years from the day that the decree went out to rebuild Jerusalem until now, you will come to this day, which is why I believe that this day actually happened not on Sunday, but on Monday believe this is actually Palm Monday, not Palm Sunday. We can have that discussion later. I won't, I won't you know, break fellowship with you if you really want it to be on Sunday. But the thing I want you to see is that Jesus is the only one who can possibly fill these, fulfill these two passages of Scripture taken together. He's the only one who can do this. And to the very day God decrees when he's going to show up. And we'll decide, and I'll tell you in just a little bit why this day is so important in the Jewish calendar. But I want to tell you this that you can trust your Bible. When you're reading those Old Testament prophecies in Daniel and you're really wondering, is that really true? Yes, it's really true. It really happens the way God says it is. You, you can always trust that God has a, has a plan and that God is always going to accomplish his plan. You may not feel like it's a great plan. You may not understand the plan. You may not always want to go along with the plan, but understand this, God has a plan and he's going to accomplish it. And he's accomplishing his plan here for, for the redemption of all mankind. And so Jesus has everything prepared Jesus has it all under control. Verse 30, he sends the two disciples. He says, go into the village, and in front of you, and upon entering, you're going to find a cult tied. How did Jesus know that? We don't have any record of Jesus, you know, sneaking off on the, on the route to Jerusalem and sneaking ahead and, and preparing them. Jesus knows. He's fully God, fully man. He knows exactly what they're going to encounter when they come to this village. And can you imagine these two disciples when they leave? i got to believe in my mind, I'm just going to use divine sanctification here and and a sanctified imagination with me, okay? Use it with me, please. One of the guys has got to be Peter, right? Right? It's got to be Peter. I mean, Peter's kind of the ambitious go-getter guy, right? It's not going to be James and John because because James and John already want to be the one on the right hand, right on the left hand. Jesus isn't picking them. I've got Peter, and I don't know who the other one is, but he picks Peter, I'm guessing here. I'm I'm just going to use Peter. But I can imagine the conversation as they're going to Bethpage. How does he know that there's going to be a colt there? I mean, come on. I I don't even know that I've ever been to Bethpage before, okay? And as they're going into the village, when they they come through the gate into the village, what do they find? There's a donkey with a colt right there. And remember what else Jesus said. When, when you go and you're untying it, you go and untie it, okay? He doesn't say, go ask permission to untie it. What's he say? Just go and untie it. Think about it this way. You're home from church this afternoon, and your neighbor walks over, and after all, because we live in the country, we can leave our car keys right out in the car, right? Said no one ever. Um, but, but you've left the keys in your car, right? And your neighbor comes over, and he's getting in the car, and he's putting on the seatbelt, and you're like, hey, Joe, what are you doing there? Hey, the Lord needs this. Oh, okay, okay, I'm going to go back and take my nap. Isn't that what we got here? Isn't that what we got here? He, Jesus says, this is what you tell him. Look at verse 31. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, hey, the Lord needs it. Okay, good enough for me. So, verse 32, those who were sent went away and found it just as it was told them. Again, again, God, God is in control of even of the small details of our lives. And, 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 and he understands even the small details of this. You say, so why, why a donkey? Well, because one is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, isn't it? The cold of a donkey. Okay? And, and, and here, Jesus is now publicly proclaiming with this donkey that I am the fulfillment of Zechariah chapter 9 and verse 9. I am, the, I am the fulfillment of this. What's interesting is, there used to be a time in Israel's history when its monarchs rode on donkeys. There was a time. Like, I know that doesn't feel very regal to us, you know, a picture of a king sitting on a jackass. I mean, really, it just doesn't seem very regal, does it? Here, Jesus is going back to the Davidic tradition because David rode on donkeys. David, King David rode on donkeys. And now he's connecting another thought here. <laughs> yeah, I am the son of David. And here I am. I'm going to come riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. He's humble, he's mounted on a donkey. I said to you, details matter. So verse 33, everything happens like they said. You know, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord has need of it. And and, and, and apparently it causes no trouble. They bring the donkey to Jesus. And now they're going to proceed to Jerusalem. Passover lambs, according to Exodus chapter 12, verses 2 through 6, were selected on the 10th day of the first month of the year in the Jewish calendar. That's the month of Nisan. The 10th day, that was the day that they were prescribed to be selected. Okay, how many of you watched 10 Commandments last night? None of you? You can't be Christian. (laughs) Cecil DeMille, Charlton Heston. Just teasing, it's a classic. That first Passover took place on the 10th day of the first month, and God said that's when it's gonna happen going forward, and every year that Passover is a remembrance of God's power in delivering his people from from the oppression in Egypt, and how how if you had blood over the doorposts of your house, and when, when the death angel came through, it passed over. Passover lambs were selected in Jerusalem, at the temple on the 10th day of the first month, and they were sacrificed on the 14th day of the month. Guess what Good Friday, what day it was? It was the 14th. That's roughly April on our calendars, if you're trying to figure that out. That's roughly April. So actually, we get, we get Easter right on our calendars for the most part, in terms of the right time of the year. And see, so when Jesus comes into Jerusalem riding on a donkey in the way that David would have ridden, he's not just symbolizing his kingship, he's also coming to Jerusalem on the day when the Passover lambs were selected, and here he is representing the Father as his chosen lamb, as his chosen lamb. So... Just as it was told him in verse 32, it happens. Christ is in complete control. And I want you to understand this because because this week, hopefully, as you're reading the crucifixion and trial and all this account this week, as you're reading all this, I want you to understand God is in control of every single detail that happens during this week of Christ's passion. You see, and that points us to something, too. If God was in control, if Jesus was in control of this first coming to Jerusalem, do you think that we can trust what he says about his return? Do you think we can trust what he says about his return? If it was prophesied that he was going to come into Jerusalem on a donkey riding in, and the things that that were going to be said are said of him, if that's all prophesied, do you think for a second that we can believe what's being said about his second coming? Yeah, we can, and we better, and we better. So we continue on in the account. We come to verse 35. They brought this to Jesus. They brought the colt. And throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. What's that all about? What's that all about? Well, spreading coats is an act of respect. It's homage to a person of royalty. Okay? You know, There's a lot of different ways you can show respect. In that culture, one of the ways you showed respect was if someone who is more important than you is coming along, somebody of royalty, somebody really important was coming along, you took your coat off and you threw it down, and you threw it on the road where he walked. What's interesting is, as we were going through... In Luke, and we saw the account of blind Bartimaeus, when when he came to know Christ, when Christ called him to him, not in the Luke passage, but in the Mark passage, you know what it said of Bartimaeus? When Bartimaeus got up, when Christ called him to him, you know what Luke or Mark records for us that he did with his coat? He threw his coat down. He threw his coat down. Now, I ask you, why would a blind man throw his coat off and he still hasn't received his sight and run to Jesus? I ask you, why would he do that? He must have understood, Bartimaeus, that this was a man of royalty. And so now as they're heading into Jerusalem, as they're heading into Jerusalem, the disciples begin, and then all the people that are thronging in there, they're throwing their coats along the road. And verse 37 says this, as he was drawing near, already on the way down the Mount of Olives. So understand this, there's this climb up the Mount of Olives from Bethphage, And they get to the summit, and when you get to the summit, when you cross over, you now look down into the Kidron Valley, which is on the eastern side of Jerusalem. And you can look across that Kidron Valley, and the one thing that grabs your attention is the temple. Jesus now comes across, and the next thing that he sees is the temple. The temple mount in all of its glory. And Jesus has got this view. As he's coming now. It's not mentioned in this passage, but Matthew and Mark tell us that they also cut down palm branches and they were and they were waving palm branches. Palm branches are a sign of joy and salvation. And 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 you bring palm branches out to celebrate. What's interesting is this isn't the last mention of palm branches in the scripture. If you're a student of the book of Revelation, you know this, that in Revelation chapter 7 and verse 9, it says this, that that there's this great multitude in heaven and a great multitude that no one can number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches in their hands. So the very act of these people waving palm branches is prophetic in and of itself. It's pointing to a day when when before the throne of God we celebrate the salvation of the Lamb, there will be many with palm branches there. And I want you to understand the things that Jesus is seeing. Because as he's proceeding down the road, down the Mount of Olives, down into the Kidron Valley, where from which he's going to have to come back up into Jerusalem. At one point, he's going to look off to his left, and he's going to look directly into the Garden of Gethsemane. Now, understand this. Jesus is fully God and fully man. As he's approaching Jerusalem and these people, there's this huge commotion of people. Jesus knows that in just a short time, he's going to be back in that garden, doesn't he? And so he's, he's seeing all of this. He, he understands that he's going to be arrested here in this garden, and, and, and he's going to wind his way down in the Kidron Valley, and then he's going to come up to what is known as the Eastern gate, or the Golden Gate, where he'll enter into the Temple complex. That gate takes you right in to the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. But there's this huge commotion. Look at verse 38. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. All these people are are praising God with a loud voice. They're saying this over and over. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Psalm 118 records for us this thing that we call the Hallel. And it was something that was used by travelers in Israel when, when they would encounter one another on the road. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They would say that to one another. You would meet a stranger on the road and you would say this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And it was just a, like a common thing to say when you would meet a stranger on the road. They'd change it. Notice what they say. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Elsewhere in the scriptures, we have recording that they're saying, Hosanna, or Lord, save now. Save now. And and so understand from their words what they are saying here. They are asking for Jesus, and they are proclaiming that here he comes. Here is the solution to all our problems. Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, and it's curtains for you, Rome. Save now. Blessed is the King, the Messiah, who is coming in the name of the Lord. And they're waiting for something big to happen. You can imagine that a large group of people that could be visibly seen from the Temple Mount in Jerusalem would would catch the attention of the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Can you imagine that? John records this for us, that there were people running out of Jerusalem to meet Jesus. There were people running out to meet him and escort him in. But notice what Luke records, and only Luke records this in verse 38. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Have you heard those words or similar words before in the scriptures? Where have we seen those words? Well, at Christ's birth, right? Isn't that what the angels are saying? And 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 why is Luke recording this here? Why are they saying this? Well, because there was this belief that the only way that God could be at peace in heaven is if his main city, Jerusalem, was at peace. And what they're saying is, it's about to happen. Finally, heaven will be at peace because Jerusalem is going to be at peace because the king is here and he's going to restore order. But there's a bucket of cold water that's about to be thrown on all this. Do you see it there in verse 39? There's some Pharisees in the crowd. (laughs) Aren't there always Pharisees in the crowd? (laughs) I mean, honestly, aren't there always Pharisees in the crowd somewhere? There's always a Pharisee that's gonna show up, and there were Pharisees here. And we have to ask ourselves, why are the Pharisees here? Well, because there's something going on. If we were listening to Sherlock Holmes, the game's afoot. Here's what's going on. The Pharisees already have a plan. They got a plan in place here. And the plan is, okay, when Jesus shows up in Jerusalem, that's going to be our time, right? The problem is Jesus isn't going along with the plan because it's a really busy time in Jerusalem. It's Passover time. We don't really want to have to arrest Jesus. We don't have to put him on trial with all these visitors coming into town. And so the Pharisees are there to kind of monitor Jesus, and they're kind of hoping that they don't have to come up with a plan B. So they're watching his every move. But they can't be silent. And they say to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. Now you got to think about this. Why, why are they so motivated to stop Jesus? And why are they so motivated to stop them? The, the proclamation? Well, there's probably two reasons. One, the smaller reason is they didn't want the attention of the Romans. Okay, They didn't want the Romans to mess with, with Passover, right? You, you can mess with a lot of our stuff, Rome, but you can't mess with Passover. And so they're like, hey, get these people quiet. We don't need Roman soldiers out here too. But there's probably a bigger thing at play here. They're really upset that Jesus is publicly being proclaimed as Messiah here. And isn't that true in the world that we live in today? Anytime you go out and say that Jesus is Lord and you live like that, guess what? You're gonna make enemies. You're gonna make enemies. There's always a Pharisee there to say, hey, just just pipe down a little bit, okay? And Jesus' response is very telling. He answered, I tell you, if. And that word if is not like the if in our English language, it's the word since. Put since in there. Since these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And you say, well, these people people aren't silent. They're crying out. But they're not crying out truth. And Jesus is drawing attention to that. They're not speaking truth. They're they're being silent on the truth. And he says this, since these are silent, the very stones are going to cry out. That word cry is an interesting word. That word cry is really a scream for vengeance. Have you ever been wronged by somebody and you just wanted to scream out, you will pay for this? It's a scream for vengeance. And I have, to, I have to wonder, where does that come from? Well, Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 11 talks about when, when, when God's going to judge Israel, Habakkuk talks about the fact that the rocks will cry out for vengeance over what Babylon is going to do, what the Chaldeans are going to do to Israel. Maybe Jesus is using those words. But Jesus is being very prophetic here, though. Because here's the thing. By the time we get to the day of Passover and the Passover lamb is offered on the cross, is anybody proclaiming that he is King of Kings and Lord of Lords? Is anybody saying, Hosanna? Is anybody saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord? No, they're all silent, aren't they? They're all deathly silent. And there's an interesting thing that happens in Matthew chapter 27 and verse 51. Let me read it to you. Matthew chapter 27. So verse 50 of Matthew 27, Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. He dies. Verse 51, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. Have you ever heard a rock split? I I put it up on YouTube this week it's loud. It's loud. It's really loud. No one was proclaiming him as Messiah when he died, and and his words turned prophetic, did they not? The rocks literally cried out. Can you trust your Bible, church? Can you trust your Bible? And so Jesus now makes his way down into the Kidron Valley. He's coming now up into the eastern gate. And in verse 41, when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. He wept over it. That word weeping there is, is, is interesting. It's like one who mourns the dead. It, it's, the, it's the strongest Greek word that there is for weeping. Let's put it that way. It wasn't like he was just tearing up. He is mourning a death. Jesus did this two other times. And and this is the only time, this is the only person, Luke's the only person who records it in this instance, but it happens two other times. We saw it earlier back in Luke chapter 13 and verse 34 that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Matthew says that later in the week, in Matthew 23, he says later in the week, Jesus is going to weep over Jerusalem again. But as Jesus is coming into Jerusalem at his triumphal entry, all of a sudden he is just overcome with this grief for Jerusalem. what's got him so grieved? Well, he explains it in verse 42. Would that you, Jerusalem, would that you, even you, had known that on this day, the things that make for peace, you're calling for peace. You're saying there's peace in heaven. You have no idea what it takes to have peace with God. I'm here to make peace with God. And if you had known that, then this would be a far different thing. And here's what he weeps over, but now they're hidden from your eyes. And what's implied there is you're not gonna get it. You haven't gotten it for three years of ministry, you're not gonna get it now. It's hidden from you. And then he speaks very prophetically. The days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. He promises judgment. If you know anything about the Roman siege of Jerusalem, this is exactly what happened. They were surrounded. They were barricaded. The historian, Josephus, wrote this. i just I got to read this to you because you can trust your Bible. What Jesus prophesied comes true. You sensing a theme here? This is what Josephus wrote about this. Caesar had already commanded the entire city and the temple to be raised to the ground, leaving only the towers which projected higher than the others to stand. There were, three, there were three towers that the Romans had built there, and those were the only three towers that were left. And that part of the wall, which enclosed the city on the west, do you want to know why the western wall is still in Jerusalem? Because Caesar said, don't knock that part down. This was to be an encampment for the troops, which would be left behind, and the towers were to reveal the, to posterity how great a city Jerusalem had been and what sort of fortifications Roman prowess had dominated. Caesar left the towers to prove to everybody this was a pretty powerful city, but you see, there's nothing else left here. We've destroyed it all. We're leaving the towers to prove just how powerful we are. All the rest of the wall, which encompassed the city, the demolition teams leveled so that no one who would come there in the future would ever believe that the spot had been inhabited. So when Jesus says, they're gonna set up a barricade, and surround you, and hem you in on every side, and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another, that's exactly what happened. That's exactly what happened. And you see the compassion of Jesus here. If you ever wonder if Jesus is compassionate, you see the king here weeping over this city, weeping over the temple, weeping over all that that represented, because their doom was sure. Friend, if Jesus, the Lord of all salvation, can weep over a fallen city that's going to reject him, I wonder why you and I can't be more concerned about the lost around us. Well, they deserve it. They're all wicked people, and we forget just how wicked we are. Conveniently, don't we? These fallen stones are going to cry out as a testimony of judgment on Israel. He was right there with them. Do you you realize that? He's right there. They're, They're proclaiming him. They're getting the word so close to being completely right, but they're so wrong, aren't they? But we shouldn't be surprised. John talked about this at the beginning of his gospel in John chapter 1 in verse 10. He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him who believed in his name he gave the right to become the children of God. You see Jesus showed up in Jerusalem at the appointed time on the exact day that he was supposed to be there. He came as Messiah. And aren't you glad he did? I mean, aren't you glad he did? If he doesn't show up in Jerusalem on that day, we have no hope. He comes as the lamb, the one that was selected by the Father to be offered for the sin of his own. And what that points me to is this. What that points me to is this. If he showed up then exactly like he was prophesied to do, you better be sure he's going to show up again exactly like it's prophesied he's going to do. You see, Jesus has a track record of faithfulness unlike you and I. (laughs) He keeps his word. And God's word goes on to record for us later on that he's going to come not as, a, not as a humble king, he's going to come as a conquering king. He's going to come as a king bringing judgment. He's going to come as a king full of wrath and fury that's ready to pour it out on this earth. But you and I, we can avoid all that through the salvation that he, that he provides for us. Because I like to look at another view that Revelation gives, the one of the saints in heaven who are around the Lamb saying, worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb who was slaved to receive glory and honor, dominion and power. And so the Passion Week begins with Jesus crying over a people that have totally missed it. They've totally missed it. And it begins with Jesus offering judgment. He's saying, They're gonna, there's come, the days are coming when your enemies will do this. Hmm. Let me say to you this week, I think it would be wise for all of us this week to dig into the final week of Jesus' life. I think it would be wise for us to do that. And let me discourage you from going and buying some devotional or getting online and looking for some plan. Those things aren't terrible, but you know what's better? Let me give to you four passages of scripture that you ought to read this week. Actually, I'm going to give you five. I'm going to throw one in for free. Bonus. The bonus passage is Isaiah 53. You ought to read Isaiah 53 this week. But you need to read Matthew chapter 26 through Matthew chapter 28 this week. You need to read Mark chapter 14 through Mark chapter 16 this week. You need to read Luke chapter 22 through Luke chapter 24 this week. You need to read John chapter 18 through John chapter 20. And you need to just let it just weigh heavy on your heart read it slowly, read it unhurried, read it with an eye, and read it with a prayerful heart that says, God, just take me there, (laughs) take me there. Feel what it's like to be with Jesus in that room when he's on trial numerous times. Understand what it was that he suffered so that you and I could have salvation. Understand the cost that he paid. Understand, as you read this, how amazing the fact is that God raised him up on the third day. And then I would just invite you, join us Friday night as we celebrate Good Friday together at seven o'clock. I know it's been a long, it'll be a long week of work. You'll be really tired. I guarantee you it will be worth your time to come. To, to take a look at the cross, to, to celebrate communion together. To me, it's the most meaningful time to celebrate communion is on, is on Good Friday. I know communion's commanded for, for all year round, do this in remembrance, but to me, there's something powerful about doing it on Good Friday. And then join us next Sunday at 9 and 10 45 as we proclaim loudly, He is risen. You guys failed at your opportunity, I snuck one in on you. He is risen oh thank you you'll be ready for next week right you'll be ready can I challenge you this week to live like he's risen to live like he is the king to live like he really is the messiah the lamb who's taking away the sin of the world can I challenge you to live that way because here's the thing, some of you are going to invite friends and neighbors to come with you to church next week and that's great. I, I totally encourage that. But if you're not living like he really matters, your invitation to church means nothing. You know that? It means nothing. So Father, as we think about Palm Sunday and we consider Christ weeping over Jerusalem, may we too have a heart that is is aware of those around us who are facing judgment a heart that 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 is broken for those who will go through that judgment and may we be bold in our witness for Christ this week I pray in Jesus name amen